Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linarduzzi and I am joined as ever by Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor. Lucy, what's new with you and have you moved on after Lonesome Dove? Hi Thea. I haven't moved on. No, not really. I can't. <laughs> At least Sorry. you're honest. It's a bit pathetic. <laughs> I can't, I haven't read any other fiction. I, have, I can't quite manage. So I've read some essays instead. That's uh, a good, I mean, I think in general, that's quite a good way of easing yourself back in. Yes, and they were very, very, very different and actually very, very good fun by Samantha Irby. Oh, yeah. And I didn't know much about her. I just picked it up and greatly enjoyed it. So, Which um, which collection is it? Because there are, is it, are there two? Uh, it's the most recent one and it's called Wow, No Thank You. <laughs> it's a great title. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> um, last week, we asked listeners to get in touch with their literary pets, their reading and or their geographical location. So Christine in the Netherlands sent me a picture of her beautiful dog, Stella, so-called for a streetcar named Desire, silhouetted against a suitably heavy sky. Ivor sent word of Wilbur, the tabby in West Lothian name for the historical novelist Wilbur Smith. And Jasmine Ergus in New York State introduced Benny the Jack Russell. I think this is my favourite. Benny the Jack Russell, named after Elizabeth Bennet, although Benny is also known, she adds, as Benita, for what might be described as a fondness for having her own way. And I just, the idea that Il Dulce should find an afterlife in the body of a small terrier is really quite enjoyable. <laughs> um, there are pleasing overlaps too. If Eric Haratunian is reading The Waves by Virginia Woolf, Francesca Baker is pet-sitting two entwined cats whom she's called Vita and Virginia. I think they like each other, says Francesca, but I'm afraid, she says, quoting Woolf, to write the stronger word. The most far-flung contributions this week come from Kadafina in Kampala, who tells me she is currently reading and delighting in Middlemarch, and Nathaniel Rees, who started listening a few months ago in Mount Hagen, Papua New Guinea. Apparently, Lucy, we have entertained him while he peels potatoes. That's, that's wonderful. I can't think of any higher praise, actually. Well, I mean, no, I mean, I'm not being funny. It's a brilliant thing to do while you peel potatoes. Absolutely. I and mean, for me, I would say it's, it's a career high point. Um, Nathaniel is also reading Middlemarch, having not long finished Burning Down the House by Tim Mower, which is a recommendation that came when you were hosting the podcast, I think, Lucy. Oh, good. Yes, it was about um, 
It was the one about being a punk in uh, in the DDR, wasn't it? In the early days, uh, the early days of punk, and actually how. Sort of in Britain, it was more like a style rebellion, but actually in East Germany, it was really you would get harassed by the police and detained, and it was actually quite a sort of dangerous thing to do. Um, yeah, it was a very interesting subject. Also, Middlemarch is quite good, I believe. It is, and it's quite a good book. I would say it's it's up there. Um, <laughs> uh, next up, Nathaniel will be turning to one of my recommendations, which is again quite different. I'd say his reading is it, it's. You, it's very eclectic. He will next next he will be reading I Am a Cat by Natsume Suzeki, which also has a pleasing full circle effect, bringing us back back to animals. Literary animals, I suppose they need not be pets. Reading updates, GPS coordinates, although that might be a bit strange. Uh, keep it all coming. Tweet me at Thea underscore Linarduzzi or email me thea.linarduzzi at the hyphen tls.co.uk. Now, coming up on this week's show... Gabrielle Walker will join us to tell us about Plants of the Humans, a controversial new documentary from Michael Moore, which might do more harm than good in the fight against climate change. And Sudhir Hazari Singh will delve into the complex relationship between charisma and celebrity in politics, tracing our uneasy yearning for great men back to the age of revolution, when a new kind of civic heroism emerged. This week, we're focusing on the environment, as well as a piece on how our reaction to coronavirus might help inform our reaction to climate crisis, we have a review of a film, one that came from someone who might be expected to support climate activists and the movement in general. I'm talking about Michael Moore, whose film on guns and violence, Bowling for Columbine, won an Oscar in 2002 for Best Documentary, and whose Fahrenheit 9-11, about the presidency of George W. Bush and the war in Iraq, was one of the highest-grossing documentaries of the age. But our reviewer, Gabriel Walker, explains how his latest film applied a large boot to some of the most celebrated solutions to the climate crisis, notably renewable energy, electric vehicles and biofuels. She joins us now to discuss this. Gabriel, many thanks for joining us. Nice to be here. So we should say first, shouldn't we... um, in the interest of accuracy, that Planet of the Humans is in fact produced by Michael Moore. It's not exactly made by him. That's right. It was actually written and, and starred in and directed by his longtime co-worker, Jeff Gibbs. But Michael Moore also, I think, co-produced it and has been definitely putting his brand very, very firmly on this film and defending it in all corners. And it's had, I know it's had a bit of a troubled release history, but it had to go out on YouTube, didn't it? Yes, he couldn't actually find a distributor, and so um, he ended up putting it on YouTube, and then it was taken down from YouTube, on, sort of on a technicality, because he'd used some footage that then the owner of the footage had sort of disputed the copyright. Uh, but I think it's back up on YouTube now, so it's definitely not been welcomed with open arms by either the distributors or, or many of the people who are who are involved in it. In, it's sort of in a nutshell, why has it caused such an outcry, this film? Well, he put a great big size nine hobnail boot right in the tenderest parts of the renewable energy industry all the way through the film. And and his thesis is really trying to prove that renewable energy doesn't solve climate change. Electric vehicles don't solve climate change. And in fact, we're all more or less doomed. I'm, I'm paraphrasing a long film, but that's more or less the central message to it. And you can imagine how that hasn't gone down well with 
people who work in climate or in renewable energy. And it certainly, I have to say, didn't go down well with me. Hence your line, um, with friends like these, who needs enemies? It does sound like a an unhelpful film and focused on the kind of finger pointing and blaming that leads to a paralysing or destructive kind of anger. Yes, and I think I found it very frustrating. I mean, plenty of other people have, have criticised different parts of it and they've actually shown, I mean, it's annoying, it's almost amateurish the way that Jeff Gibbs, for example, I understand he couldn't resist showing 12-year-old footage of himself critiquing the very early forms of renewable energy. And it's kind of, it's almost like saying, look, I've been in this from the beginning. When all the rest of you were getting excited about this, I was the one who saw the problems. The consequence of that is he's made a, a movie in 2020 about really old technology. And I think things have, have moved on so fast in the last decade with renewable energy that in terms of price, in terms of technology, that as I, I said in the piece, it's really as if, as if you decide in 2020 to make a documentary about mobile phone technology and you base it on facts from before when the iPhone was invented. That's just not the way to make a documentary now about renewable energy. The things, the criticisms he's making, we've known about for years and they don't apply anymore. And so it sounds very dun, 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 dramatic, but it's really... It's very old and tired. And in your very clear and incisive piece, you pinpoint three attitudes that, that you think are common and also extremely unhelpful that the film displays. Can you talk us through them, please? Uh, so other people have picked about... There's, there's plenty of things that he says in the film which really aren't right or are misleading, and, and there's quite a few other people who've picked those apart in detail, so I didn't feel like I needed to do that. But what I did notice is that the film highlighted three mindsets, three approaches to climate change and launched into them that they've been worrying me for quite a long time and now they're worrying me a lot. I think that they're, they're, they're some of the most destructive ways to think about and talk about climate at the moment. And in the past, we've all focused on climate denialism, you know, climate change isn't real, humans aren't causing it. And that's kind of fallen away quite a lot. Not really many people are talking that way now because it's so abundantly evident that it's not true. But there's three more mindsets that I think would go in the same category as really damaging. And the, the first one of those, I would say, is it's purism. Purism. So this is a sense, and, and there's quite a few people who work in the climate change area who are actually, I have to say, somewhat guilty of this, which is, Solutions have to be perfect. They have to be pure. They have to be natural. They can't involve anything like cement or steel or anything that feels dirty. They can't involve corporations and they certainly can't involve anyone to do with finance or banks. So they've got to be sort of somehow pure and natural and ideally uh, involving unicorns and rainbows. And I'm obviously exaggerating and it's probably not fair. And some people who hold aspects of purism definitely don't go that far. But, but Moore and Gibbs definitely do. I mean, Gibbs seemed to think it was an absolute killer argument against renewable energy that is, is a, it's an industry and that it involves corporations, it involves finance, and therefore it must be wrong. And that I find very frustrating because business has to be part of the solution. Businesses know how to deliver things at scale. Businesses are, are, in my opinion, the delivery arm of the big scale climate solutions. And there'll be climate solutions around behaviour change and individuals, but on the big scale, it really has to be businesses. And businesses have to be financed, and that's the way the world works. And so it just feels kind of childish to say, oh, it all has to be pure and it has to be perfect. And not just childish, but a, a direct route to ensuring that we don't solve climate change. Yes, because in the even I'm trying to think even in the very purest best case scenario, what are the businesses doing? You you can't just make businesses not 
exist. Yeah, you can, if you make businesses not exist and jobs not exist and the economies not exist, you'll cause an awful lot more misery right now than we're anticipating from climate change. But nobody, nobody sensible in the, in the climate movement, and there's a lot of very sensible people in the climate movement throughout uh, NGOs, academics, and also in businesses, uh, understand that you actually you need to change the whole system, but you need to change the system in a way that's going to work for being able to feed and clothe and house all the people on Earth. The thing that I find really exciting, most of my work at the moment is working with businesses, and it was a bit of a change for me. I've been working on climate change for more than 20 years, but for the past 10 years I've been working with business because I realised, much to my surprise actually, that, that businesses really, they cross national boundaries unlike governments, so they can apply in different areas. They're often headed by people who are in post. CEOs last longer than your average minister in a government, so they can actually have longer term thinking. They have massive influence on their customers, on their supply chain. Some, some of the big companies can literally reach billions of people with what they do. And many of them have people at the top who genuinely want to do the right thing and use evidence as their basis for how they want to act. And, you know, broadly speaking, if you're doing your business right, you're giving the world something that it wants and wants to pay for. And right now what we need and what we want are solutions to climate change. And so if you look from small to big, you can find businesses falling over themselves, even this year in a time of COVID. You've had business after business saying, this is how we're going to fix climate change. And not just, you know, like Microsoft said this, they're going to go net zero by 2030. They said that this year. Apple has just announced it. Um, BP and Shell, big oil and gas majors, have been saying that they're going to do it. And that's just this year. And I've been speaking to lots of senior executives in these companies and saying, has COVID made you slow down in your climate change agenda and your energy transition? And they said, you know what they said? It's the opposite. We're speeding up. We're actually accelerating the changes we'd already decided to make. It's interesting that not taking action on climate change seems to now be perceived as being harmful to the prospects of a business and that's a that's a real change absolutely and it's a massive change that's happened just in the last couple of years and when i speak to the senior execs and say why why are you not slowing down why are you speeding up most of them have said to me the investors are, are putting more pressure not less and so that's where i also thought the whole michael moore jeff gibbs movie was missing a trick it was implying that if any finance people were involved in anything to do with climate change that must mean they were doing it for the profit motive and therefore it couldn't be right but in fact, investors are saying, we've realised now this is the future. So if you're not getting with the programme, you're going to be a very bad investment because you're going to lose money. And so, you know, I think that the, the finance sector has actually it's moved very fast. 18 months ago, hardly anyone was talking like this. Now it's really become mainstream. And also, I think they're missing a trick because one of the things I've found frustrating is pension funds. There are trillions of dollars in pension funds, which are basically your savings and my savings and everybody's savings. They're currently contributing to the problem, but if they shift and start contributing to the solution, that's a fire hose of money that can be put into the, the, the ways that we solve this. And, and that's a really important part of the story. You know, I, I've spoken to so many people who say, if only I could do something, maybe I should walk a bit more or eat a bit less meat. And I say, where's your pension invested? And they don't know. And if a few of us start writing to our pension funds and saying we want this to be part of the solution, I can tell you the trustees would actually panic about that. It's really, it makes a big difference. And you also say that the slightly surprising thing that you say that the world's biggest asset manager, BlackRock, is now signed up as well, isn't it? 
Yeah. And there's this thing, there's a brilliant thing called the, the United Nations Principles for Responsible Investment, where they, their signatures have to sign up to saying, yes, we want to be responsible in our investment. And there's a big focus on, on climate change, how you're disclosing your uh, emissions and what you do about that. And there's also this activist organisation, Climate Action 100+, Plus, which is trying to shift the sort of hundred and odd biggest polluters to removing their emissions. And BlackRock just signed up. BlackRock have been very criticised for what they've been doing. And they've got more than $7 trillion assets under management. And they've just signed up for Climate Action 100+. And Climate Action 100+, does things like um, shareholder resolutions and AGMs. It makes itself a nuisance for companies saying, we ha- we're going to get the shareholders together and get them to vote to force you to disclose your emissions or to act on climate. But what's starting to happen with the likes of BlackRock joining is that the companies are now working with Climate Action 100 and supporting their resolutions rather than trying to fight them. So that's just another way in which the investors, you know, there's pressure coming from consumers on one side and governments on another and from investors on another. There's no wonder the, 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 the businesses are acting. Um, you were talking about purism there. What's the... Um... What's, what's the second book? OK, <laughs> um, so the second one is doomism. And, and there's climate scientist Michael Mann has written brilliantly about doomism. It's been bothering me for quite a while as well. There's um, uh, Jonathan Franzen, I think it was sometime last year, he wrote this article in The New Yorker saying basically we're all doomed and we shouldn't put any more money into solutions to, for climate change because it's already too late and we should just be kind of preparing ourselves for the apocalypse. And I know that sustainability professor Jem Bendel has been putting this around as well, sort of saying society's collapse is now inevitable and that he sort of has evidence that the collapse is inevitable. And society might collapse, he might be right, but there's definitely not evidence that it's, it's inevitable. But this kind of message, I think, was also coming out in Michael Moore's movie. If you follow it through to the end, you sort of say, well, OK, he's saying that renewable energy doesn't work because it's industrial and it's big and it, there's all sorts of other ways in which he criticises it that don't really apply. But his conclusion is because it doesn't work, then we're all doomed unless we can radically reduce our population and somehow change our behaviour in ways that they don't specify at all. And I think doomism is kind of, it's like the love child of denialism. You go straight from it's not happening to it's all too late and it's all impossible without actually going through the in-between bit, which is where we need to be. And so I think that this whole message of we're doomed is a very dangerous and damaging one. I suppose it comes down to that sort of age-old decision about whether fear or hope is more likely to motivate people. Yeah, and I think in, in, in this piece, I, I mentioned a couple of books. There's, there's, a, there's a, a wonderful book about reinventing capitalism by Rebecca Henderson that talks about the role that businesses can play in all of this. And it's one, one of several, but you know, it sort of highlights some of the things I've been saying. The book came out before a lot of the announcements that I've just described, but you know, it just sort of shows that, that that process is continuing. And then for doomism, there's a really brilliant book called The Future We Choose by uh, Christiane Figueres and Tom Rivet Karnak. And Christiana Figueres was the architect of the Paris Agreement that actually triggered a lot of the changes that we've been seeing, the, the global agreement saying we're going to act on climate change from all the global governments. And Rivet Carnot was her, her, her chief lieutenant in that. So they really know how to make something happen. They set out the nightmare of what happens if we just let climate change happen. But they also set out the dream of what happens if we get it right. And I love the way that their dream is not a utopia. It's actually quite realistic and it feels very achievable, but it's also very good. And I mentioned that because uh, Christiana Figueres and Tom Robert Karnak have founded a, an organisation to do with optimism. They describe optimism, they say it's not soft, it's gritty. 
it's kind of it rolls up its sleeves and it gets on with things it gives people the desire to engage to contribute to fix it it's not it's not a state of the world it's a state of mind but it's just you know we, we look at we look at what what needs to happen and we go okay how do we make it happen it's a bit like the moonshot we decide we're going to do this and we work out how to do it and we humans are good at that and the one way to counter that kind of doomism is to is to arm yourself with this optimism and it's not soft it is gritty because it comes along with all the things that are already happening all the businesses that are acting, all the people that are changing, all the governments that are setting these targets and showing how they're going to make them, all the technologies that are reducing in their cost, all the new inventions that are going to be part of this, and all the new ways of thinking where we realise that maybe we don't want to have lots of stuff that we get, throw away into big waste heaps and keep on doing that, but we want a more circular way of living. All of those things together are what are going to solve climate change. It occurs to me as well that the other thing about doomism as a position is it's it's a lot easier, it's a lot less work than sort of practical optimism, isn't it? Yeah, I said to quite a few people, I can't afford pessimism, it's too expensive. It's too expensive because of the consequences of it, but it's also too easy. It's like the people who sit in an armchair watching Olympic athletes going, oh, come on, run a bit faster, you should have done that better, shouldn't you? I just have no patience with it. Roll up your sleeves and get on with it. And if you're not helping, for goodness sake, just get out of the way. And don't make a movie that convinces people Mm. that they can all sit on their armchairs. Make a movie that convinces them that they should be getting up and rolling up their sleeves. And that's the movie that I was hoping to see. And that's why I was so disappointed. The third one is one that almost nobody is talking about or writing about. And it's the one that drives me maddest. It's in in some ways hardest to articulate. I called it exclusivism which is that a lot of people have focused all of the climate change efforts on just one small section of it. So it's, you know, we, we think that it's all about energy. And then we think that energy is, is the same thing as electricity. And then we think that to fix electricity, all you need to do is have solar power and wind. So all of the efforts and attention around climate change have been, have been on electricity and electrification and solar power and wind and electric vehicles. And that's, this, I know I'm not knocking that at all, it's utterly essential and I'm a huge supporter of all of that. But my point is that there's also an awful lot of other things that we need to solve. There's agriculture, there's circular economy, there's reducing waste, and particularly there's industrial emissions. All the, you know, the, the cement that we make in the world actually produces 8% of global emissions, which is something like four times the, the amount of the aviation industry. And then there is the aviation industry as well, which is very hard to electrify, and there's shipping. There's steel and aluminium and chemicals, and there's, there's other kinds of heavy industry that, that generate good jobs that we really want to preserve, but that also generate a lot of emissions. And for all of those things, we have solutions. But what Michael Moore and Jeff Gibbs suggested is that, that if they just criticise renewable electricity, then those were the only possible solutions for climate change, and then the whole thing fell down. And I think some, of, some people have asked for this. A lot of people still say we have the solutions. We have, we have solar, wind and electric vehicles as if that's the whole thing. And I say, what about the rest? There's also carbon capture and storage, which we're going to need, ways of capturing carbon dioxide both out of factory chimneys and out of the air and burying it back underground. There's new ways of doing agriculture. There's this whole new way of designing materials so that you build in to the, it's called cradle to cradle, the circular economy. When you're designing it, you think about how at the end of its lifetime it can go back into process again and again instead of just being thrown away. And they're all part of the solution and they all need to be part of the conversation and not just pretending that it's all about electricity. 
it's that we need to be multitasking all the time, basically, not just pointing to one thing and saying, look, I've fixed it. It's all fine now. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I said it's like putting all your efforts into putting out the fire in one room in the house while the rest of the house burns merrily on. You don't want to do that. You've got to put the fire out everywhere. And so that's why I call it exclusivism, because it comes along with the my solution, not yours. It shouldn't. You shouldn't be working on that. You should be working on this. Money shouldn't go to that. It should go to this. My solution's better than your solution. And right now we need everybody round the table, which is why I don't like purism. And we need everything on the table, which is why I don't like exclusivism. We really need everybody pulling their weight on this and we need every possible solution. And if we do that and we roll up our sleeves with our gritty optimism and we bring in the finance and the business and the individuals and the campaigners and the people on the street, we will fix this. And that's the only way to do it, to do it together. It, it does. It, when you say it like that, it's extremely inspiring, apart from anything else. But it, does, it also does make it sound a bit like coronavirus, doesn't it? A crisis that's staring us in the face kind of thing. Yeah. And I think with the coronavirus, I stayed away from that in this piece. Bill McKibben's written about it in the paper. But what I think is really interesting about the coronavirus situation, first of all, I thought that it would slow down climate. And in fact, it sped up action on climate. And the other thing is that I think we've experienced now viscerally what it's like to have a systemic shock to the system how awful it is, how expensive it is, how shocking it is, how, how, what it does to the economy, how it puts people out of work, how it stops people moving around. And this is the kind of systemic shock to the system that we've been warning about with climate change. Climate change is not just about it getting a bit warmer, it's about this kind of shock that can hit the whole world and can hit the whole world with repeated waves of shocks. And now we know what it feels like. I think people are taking that kind of risk a lot more seriously. But the other thing is, we've also realised that we are all in this together. There's no point in, you know, uh, New Zealand has eliminated coronavirus, but it still can't operate in the global economy. As long as anybody has it, everybody has it. And that's the same with climate change. It's a global warming, there's a clue in the title. So I think it's beginning to give people more of a feeling that we are genuinely all in this together and therefore we all need to be part of the solution. Yeah. We do get the message that you're not keen on the film. Does it, does it make any relevant criticisms or you know things that you would agree with i think it's it's worth it's worth being suspicious you know i don't want to make it sound as if every business and every financier has suddenly become a force for good there are certainly people still out there who are just trying to feather their own nest and trying to get away with it for as long as possible and i think it's really important to scrutinize this um i i just say that you can't tar everybody with that brush but they also make points like i mean jeff Gibbs revealed it like it was a revelation that there's no point in having electric vehicles if the electricity that they run on comes from coal. And that's certainly true, but we've known that for a long time. And I think it's brilliant that in Europe, electric vehicles already produce 30% fewer emissions if you look from cradle to grave than the petrol equivalents. And the, the more we decarbonise the grid, the better that will be. I'm not saying we don't, we don't need to criticise and test and, and, and make transparent, but we do need to, to use modern, up-to-date arguments to do that. And, and also just to try to quit with the pointing fingers and casting blame just at the moment when everybody's actually trying to pull together. Well, finally, Gabriel, um, you have said that doomism, and you've explained to us why doomism is a real problem, and you are very, very good at offering hope rather than despair. So... Tell me what our grounds for optimism are, please. 
Our grounds for optimism are, are several fold. First of all, we've identified this crisis, we understand it, and we're finally getting the message through, not just to the few people who've been sort of talking about this, the, the few scientists and the few governments, but the whole world. So the Paris Global Government Agreement is grounds for optimism. The mass movements on the street, the kids, the adults, the people actually understanding that this is our future is a ground for optimism. The businesses that are acting is a massive ground for optimism. The commitments for net zero, this race to zero that's happening now. I found out uh, there last week, it's 53% so far of global GDP generators are cited in places that have a net zero commitment for climate. So that's more than half the global economy already, and that's rising by every day, a new announcement. So, you know, the, the generators of the global economy, who are the generators of most of the emissions, are now with the programme and are now shifting. The finance sector is shifting. And, you know, I also think that, that a big grounds for optimism is this sense that when COVID hit and we were actually forcibly separated from one another, what we missed was hugs and connection and, and, and human contact and the understanding that we are connected. And I think that's given us a mindset that can really help us accelerate out of this crisis and into solving the climate crisis. Brilliant. Thank you. We've got no excuse now. And no excuse so. whatsoever. <laughs> so get with the programme, roll up your gritty optimism okay. sleeves and get to work. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Gabriel Walker, for talking to us. You're welcome. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Charismatic leadership, writes Sodir Hazari Singh this week, is one of the most controversial as well as one of the most elusive features of our modern political life. Whether a political candidate has charisma or not continues to make all the difference at the ballot box. But this doesn't mean we fully understand what it is, how it comes about, how it can be created. Part of the puzzle, the origins of the great man, great myth phenomenon, 
is tackled in a book by David Bell, the wonderfully titled Men on Horseback, which Sadir reviews, tracing the historical origins of the charismatic leader back to the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Though our leaders are no longer in the saddle, except for Vladimir Putin, of course, and indeed are no longer all men, we are still, in many ways, playing in the shadows of an image cast in the Age of Revolution. Sudhir Hazari Singh joins us on the line now to tell us more. Hello, Sudhir. Hello, Thea. Hello, thank you for joining us. And you've written a great piece, so we'll dive right in. The Age of Revolution, you say, created the ideal political and cultural conditions for this new kind of heroism to flourish. It might be worth just trotting us through some of the main conditions that facilitated this charisma machine. Yes, so charisma is something which literally means the gift of divine grace. And of course, it's been with us since antiquity. Shakespeare describes Julius Caesar as bestriding the narrow world like a colossus. So um, it's a phenomenon that's been around for a long time. But what Bell does in this book is to talk about a particularly modern form of it, which arises in the late 18th and early 19th century in the age of revolutions, as you mentioned. And the Facilitating conditions are, um, first of all, the overthrow of monarchies and the emergence of republics. Um, The four particular figures that he looks at in this book are all Republican leaders who create new Republican constitutions. And they're also warriors. They're also great warriors, hence the title of the book. And the other very interesting thing that Bell does in the book is to explain and explore how charisma is something that resides not only in one particular individual. So, you know, it's it's a bit of personal magnetism on the one hand, but it's also something that is socially constructed. And he spends a lot of time exploring how in oral and in written culture, these leaders are put up on a pedestal and celebrated and an an entire new type of cult develops, um, which is the cult of men on horseback. I've been reading a fair bit about Garibaldi recently. I assume he comes into the book, Um, but it's, it's astounding how modern this kind of celebrity seems. I mean, the sheer volume of print and paraphernalia that helped to build him up as the hero of the two worlds, the product tie-ins, the commemorative biscuits. It just feels all of it so modern. Yes, and it's an entire political culture that, that actually has quite a lot of religious connotations to it. And in some respects, it's a sort of humanization of traditional religious culture. Because what the Enlightenment does, of course, is in one sense to replace the divine right of kings with the the Republican idea of popular sovereignty. But at the same time, and what is really interesting about this phenomenon, is that it gives a a very small number of individuals certain godlike qualities. So you have all the phenomena that used to be associated with religion and religious practices, um, like the collection of relics, um, like the attribution of supernatural qualities to individuals, like the investing of emotions in individuals. All of that is then translated to this particular uh, uh, cast of heroic leaders. And, and you see it with these revolutionary figures that Bell talks about, but it continues, as you say, well into the 19th century and indeed into, into the 20th, because it's all figures who are associated with this revolutionary Republican tradition are people who are liable to be a part of this kind of Republican cult. 
There's an interesting tension, isn't there, between it? You can you could see why people might do it about emperors and kings, because in a way they had no choice. But to be very romantic and sort of passionate and devoted to a Republican leader who, as you say, the, the legislation was very important within what they did and the, their civil codes and what they established. That doesn't immediately sound like a very kind of passion-inducing aspect, but it was, wasn't it? That's exactly right, Lucy. There's a kind of wonderful tension because on the one hand, because this is very much associated with the Enlightenment, this is about rationalism, this is about uh, the production of new constitutions. In fact, all four of the figures uh, studied in this book, Paoli, the Corsican, Washington, uh, the American, Toussaint Louverture from Saint-Domingue, and Bolivar um, in South America, they all produce these new a very rationalist constitutional orders. But at the same time, they are people who believe in charisma and believe that they themselves have this particular almost predestined mission to lead their people towards freedom and prosperity. And in the cases of some of them, particularly Bolivar, um, you know, it, it gets really quite mystical and almost delirious. There's one great moment in 1822 when he climbs uh, Mount Chimborozo in Ecuador and declares, there is no tomb for me because I'm more powerful than death. Gosh. Quite, quite a bold statement. <laughs> <laughs> I have to remember that one. <laughs> um, I imagine, Sadir, you were especially pleased to see your own subject, Toussaint Louverture, in there as well. How does David Bell capture him? Does he does he do him justice, do you think? I think he really does, because uh, he says, uh, I mean, this is my view as well, but it's nice to have it echoed by someone who's a bit more objective. He, he says at one point that Louverture is in many ways the most remarkable of these figures. And, and I think that's right, not least because unlike all the others, Toussaint begins his life as a slave. He, he grows up in a, in a sugar plantation in Saint-Domingue. And in 1791, when the revolution begins in Saint-Domingue, he quickly becomes one of the leaders and then the leader of the slave revolution uh, in that colony. And then there's this kind of meteoric uh, ascension during which he combines all the different roles of the heroic leader. He's a great military leader, but he's also someone who produces his own constitution. And the guiding thread in his political thinking and his political practice is to preserve his people and to protect them from re-enslavement. And that's what he does all the way through to the very end. You mentioned military prowess, which is um, it's a common thread in all of these people. I mean, in spite of the many contextual differences, geography, biography, culture uh, and character, military prowess is, is this recurring thread. And the horse is a vital part of the iconography, isn't it? It just wouldn't be the same, I suppose, to see these men standing. <laughs> no, indeed. Uh, and in fact, one of the striking things that Bells brings out in the book is that there are many famous paintings of Napoleon, but there's the one that we all know, which is David um, showing him on horseback. And it turns out that there are almost identical representations of Bolivar and of Toussaint Louverture. That kind of iconic image of um, the warrior, uh, who's also the providential hero and the savior of the nation, is one that is very much associated with the age of revolution at that time. So they were sort of looking at each other and learning how to get the right posture and create the right image. 
Yes, and, and what Bell does very well in the book is to show these interconnections. I mean, in, in many respects, the, the world of the uh, high enlightenment was, was even more interconnected th than ours today, um, because th the initial model of the, of the heroic uh, leader is Paoli. Um, and after that model is set up, the model sort of travels to Britain and to the United States, and the Americans uh, name towns after Paoli. Paoli is a great hero who then inspires um, the creation of the heroic image of Washington. And Washington, by the time he's become the great figure that we all know in the 1780s, his star is, is beginning to shine um, in France. And, and, and in the early years of the French Revolution, the sort of model of Washington is one that is cited by a number of people, often, often actually in contrast with Napoleon, of course, because Washington is seen as the man who's selfless, who devotes himself to the common good. I mean, people don't talk about the fact that unfortunately he also owned 317 slaves, but that's by the by. But, but there's that model of the, the leader who's devoted to public good, um, which becomes one of the kind of iconic uh, representations of the American Revolution. And Toussaint Louverture is sometimes referred to by his admirers as the Bonaparte of the Caribbean. So you see these interconnections among these different leaders in this uh, wonderful book. I mean, as I know that, Theo, in your intro, you said, oh, no one's on horseback apart from Vladimir Putin anymore. But and I know that was a, a bit of a of a gag, but but it's also very true. It's it's extraordinary how modern they are and how just the simple fact of being on horseback, because I don't know enough about Napoleon, um, but Sudir does. <laughs> what we hear about him is that he wasn't terribly impressive, but you put him on a horse and, you know, paint a picture of the horse <laughs> rearing up and him looking noble and dashing and pointing forwards, which is what happens in the David, and which is what almost all of the other iconography works. It, I mean, it puts you above people, it puts you in a position of command, and that's, that's what Putin is doing as well, isn't it? Yes, uh, and I suppose the modern equivalent is that you take your country to war. You're a war leader. But one of the things I argue in the piece is that that, and, and that was true both in the late 18th century and today, the image of the great warrior is, is double-edged because, of course, as long as you're successful, the image works. But as we saw in the case of Napoleon, eventually he overreached himself I would say by, by 1808, 18, certainly by the time of the Russian campaign, his, his kind of heroic image as the invincible warrior has taken a, a severe dent. And of course, he eventually ends up losing. And, and if you look at modern times, you know, if you compare Thatcher and Tony Blair, you see that it works for the one in the case of the Falklands. But, you know, Tony Blair, in my view, never really recovered from the Iraq debacle. So um, it's, it's fine to get on the horse, but if, if you get pushed off it, um, you can be in big trouble. Well, and, and there, there is, I mean, there's an interesting point to make about this charismatic leadership's relation to democracy, isn't there? I mean, bearing in mind that the four men uh, where David Bell is talking about, democracy didn't, didn't really figure much at the time. I think the most appropriate uh, modern equivalent would be someone like de Gaulle, who's a big general, uh, who's a war hero. And then when his country faces a big crisis in 1958, he comes back and under, under rather controversial circumstances, overthrows uh, the old republic and creates a new one. And, and a lot of the accusations of authoritarianism, which were directed at uh, these um, classic men on horseback, were also directed at de Gaulle. 
So within democracy, as it were, you can have this phenomenon of authoritarianism. And of course, Putin is someone who is a great admirer of de Gaulle. So there is that uh, continuity that one can identify there. What lessons might modern leaders draw from this? I was interested that you you leave us with a thought about Angela Merkel. I think charismatic leadership uh, is is a good thing and, and sometimes a necessary thing in moments of great crisis. And I think it's very helpful that in this moment of need, these different political communities were able to draw on these strong, visionary, uh, charismatic leaders. But I think one of the lessons of the book is that charisma is not really uh, sustainable as a mode of governance. Um, And I think you see that over and over again uh, in history. And I think if you're looking at styles of governance, I think um, they're much more a product of political institutions uh, and political cultures. So Britain and France, with with our kind of first-past-the-post system, we end up producing these big parties and looking for strong leaders. Whereas if, if you take the example of Germany or even the Scandinavian countries, where they have a different electoral system and where there's a much greater emphasis on parties cooperating, then charismatic leadership is not something that is given uh, a great deal of importance. And indeed, I would argue that those kind of systems over time produce a much more uh, efficient type of politics. Um, So in places like Denmark and places like Sweden, we don't know necessarily who the prime minister is, but that doesn't matter because these are people who are just doing the job in a rather different way. Well, certainly in the case of Angela Merkel, that would seem to hold water, that theory. You say her success by cultivating comes by cultivating a sort of almost deliberately anti-heroic style. She's sort of pointing the camera away from herself and more at the kind of the general smooth running of, of, of her party and the government. It's the opposite of the man on horseback. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. And, uh, and she, I, I would argue, is the most successful democratic politician of our times. And so, so you don't really need this kind of flashy charisma in order to succeed. And, and, and more often than not, it gets in the way. It does make a good portrait, though. Sudhir <laughs> um, <laughs> Hazari Singh, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. That is all we have time for this week. All our thanks to Sudhir Hazari Singh and Gabrielle Walker. Don't forget to pick up a copy of the TLS in print or digitally. In this week's issue, you will find all of the pieces discussed on the show, as well as many others, including one on the wonders of walking, followed by one on trespass and our limited right to roam. See what we did there. And on how travel is vital to philosophy, there's also a vivid account of the unusual life of one 19th century Japanese woman and a missive from a doctor who's had quite a positive pandemic. Next week and for the next month, Lucy and I will be away. I will be bashing my head against my laptop trying to write a book. And Lucy, Lucy, what will you be up to? I'd like to picture you maybe deadheading in the allotment or harvesting abundant tomatoes and plums and and things like that. You can picture me doing that if you like, Thea. (laughs) (laughs) Would it not be an accurate representation of your state? Well, no, it would be nice. Why don't you imagine me in a sort of bucolic um, utopia? I think The cornucopia under your arm. Yeah, exactly. Like series. Uh, I'll probably actually be working hunched over a laptop, I imagine. But yeah, no, think of me the other way with a basket under my arm. Okay, well, we'll all think of you that way. Uh, In any case, Lucy and I will be back with new weekly episodes from September the 10th. And until then, we'll pop up in your feed on the usual day at the usual time. 
to keep you company with book recommendations gathered from the past few years, because a good book then is still a good book. For now, though, from Lucy and from me, goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.